Welcome to WEHC, where you're tuning in to She Walks. This is a conversation with various people in the community regarding women and how important it is for women to walk to freedom in every aspect of their lives. And also we talk about current events and the things that are going on that are really shaping America and beyond. And so uh, in a few minutes, Carly's gonna introduce our guest we told you about last week who is gonna come and we are so excited to have her with us. Um, but we, we just wanna kinda recap a little bit about what we talked about. We talked last week about uh, white supremacy and we gave a couple of textbook definitions of white supremacy and we hope that we'll get uh, some additional information on that today and we really talked about the whole Buffalo New York challenge just the massacre and the murder and we started to talk about the great replacement theory or the replacement theory that the the murderer espoused in his manifesto and, and some of those kinds of things. And so we're excited to have uh, someone with us. And I'm going to let Carly introduce our, our guest today, and then we'll just start picking up from where we left off. Carly and I are self-admitted, not experts. <laughs> We're just two chicks on a show. And so we bring the experts in to kind of help us with this. So Carly, can you introduce our guest for today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you all will remember, we had Dr. Kristen Krauss with us during Women's History Month. And we're very excited to have her back with us today. Um, she is a political scientist and faculty member at EHC. And so we're really excited to have her with us to talk a little bit about the Great Replacement and her perspectives on that as well. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to y'all today. Yeah, uh, Dr. Krause, last week we kind of just talked, as I said earlier, you know, the that racist mass shooting that left 10 people dead, some people injured, and how it really just put on the national spotlight this concept that we're hearing that experts and extremists have been using for years, uh, the replacement theory or the great replacement. And so Carly and I felt like because we were on air that we might want to get somebody real <laughs> to talk a little bit about it and to kind of help our audience you know, come to grips with why, maybe even why or how it's being used so cavalier and is being incorporated into some extremist ideology. Sure, yeah. So I think that this is a really interesting history that we can talk about of just even the term, the Great Replacement, uh, because the term itself has roots in the 20th century and it actually comes out of France and French nationalism. But we can also talk about how the idea itself isn't actually new. Um, and it really has roots in, in 19th century Europe and the United States. And so we'll start sort of the mirror um, and kind of go back to the far, the further past, um, because the actual term, the Great Replacement, it comes from a book that was written in 2011 by a guy named um, Renaud Camus. My French is terrible, so I, I'm probably mispronouncing that. But he, and no relation to the, the French philosopher Camus, by the way, but he wrote a book that, that was called The Great Replacement. And he talks about replacement theory coming out of a novel called The Camp of the Saints. And basically this was a book about how this, this wave of migration from the Middle East and North Africa takes over France in this sort of like dystopian novel that was written. I'm forgetting when that book was written, but it, you know, we're talking late 20th century. I think it was the 1970s maybe, right? So the great replacement kind of comes out of these dystopian ideas of white supremacy, where it's like the, the white race is going to be replaced by brown and black folks, basically. Um, and in particular immigration, 
Um, and so in, in that version of the Great Replacement, it's migration from the Middle East and North Africa that is going to wipe out native white Europeans and because of these non-white immigrants. Um, and there's lots of like little conspiracy theories that go along with this. There's sort of all these different versions. Sometimes it's sort of like the liberal elite that are bringing these migrants in because they're supposedly easier to manipulate. The idea that they're not as intelligent as white folks and so that they're easier to manipulate so that the elite can remain in power. This is a version that, you know, is often really compelling for folks who are who are poor or who are you know struggling themselves and see as somehow the the folks who are coming in as migrants are getting a better position or sort of jumping the line and so then there's also versions where it's not the liberal elite but it's the jews right it's very anti-semitic right and so this is the idea that the cabal of of jewish people who are in charge of the whole world, because this is, it, it ties into lots of other anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, they're the ones who are bringing in all of these non-white immigrants for, again, for the reason that it's, that these folks are supposedly supposed to be more easy to manipulate to get them to go the way that you want them to go. It might be with voting or it might be complying with other things, right? Um, and so this is sort of the, the great replacement coming out of that French author and, and his book in 2011 based on this stuff coming out of the 1970s and 1990s. Um, but you, you might be listening to this and going like, this is about immigration. Maybe I can see how this would be tied into um, some kinds of rhetoric in the United States, but why is this leading to this terrible massacre in Buffalo against Black folks, right? Because it also ties in with ideas that that are very similar, like things like white genocide, which is the idea that came out of the early 20th century, things that have to do with you know, the idea that, you know, now that we've let it after the Civil War in the United States, now that we've given citizenship uh, kind of to Black folks, that they are going to be populating the country and getting taking away rights from, from white folks to the point where they're no longer going to be the majority in the country. Um, and so, right, you can hear how that's very similar. It's replacement. It's still replacement, even though it's not through migration. You know, and I think I was doing some reading about this earlier this week, and, you know, this comes up, you know, we know that this was happening starting in the 1890s, right? There were uh, British and Australian, like anywhere we're talking about white majority because of colonization or because you're coming out of we're Europe. So, you know, Australian, um, the United States, those kinds of places are looking at the idea that there's, they, they're getting pushed out. And we also have examples of this coming out of the early uh, 1900s, right? 1916, 1924, there's a bunch of these things coming out that are that are talking about this. And the example that I think really sticks with me is it's actually in The Great Gatsby. F. Scott Fitzgerald lampoons these ideas in The Great Gatsby. One of the characters who we're supposed to hate in the story, uh, right, Tom Buchanan, quotes a book that is fictional in Great Gatsby, but did actually exist in real life that talks about Right, the idea that if we, if you're not careful, then the white race will get submerged by other because, like, of birth rates and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the book, F. Scott Scott Fitzgerald is showing us this so that we'll like hate Tom Buchanan even more. But it's there, right? This idea that you know, and The Great Gatsby was written in oh, geez, now I have to remember when The Great Gatsby was written in the 1920s or 30s, I think. Right, it's all the same rhetoric. Sometimes it's it's always non-white, right? But sometimes it's Black folks, sometimes it's Muslim or Arab, sometimes it's North African, 
right? Sometimes it's, you know, I've heard it with, you know, Mexican or Central American migration. It's was the uh, founding sort of manifesto type ideology of the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, the mm-hmm. Pittsburgh massacre of the synagogues back in 2018, as well as this Buffalo massacre recently. It's the founding ideology or the pushing ideology of the the race laws of based on immigration, right? The quota system that was put into place in the United States in the 1930s. It's the founding ideology of the forced sterilization that happened in the United States in the early 20th century. It is not a new idea, even though it was given a new name in the 21st century. I, that's like a very, very sort of all over the place brief uh, history, but uh, I hope that's a good place to start. I, I think it is. And, and it, as you were talking and you were walking us, I, I thought about how it, it sounds like it's probably even connected to abortion. Anything, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you were, you were walking us through and I was, as you were walking us through, I thought she's going to get us all the way up to this whole abortion issue because white people need to have more white babies. <laughs> to combat this, you know, and I know that's kind of a conspiracy theorist myself, but, but I just think that there is some connection there. I just wonder why this replacement theory, why it fuels people such as, um, the, the young man, the 18 year old, uh, Gendron or whatever, I can't remember his name, but the 18 year old who is accused of this massacre in Buffalo, wonder why that would be, he would be fueled by, a theory such as this, even if it's misappropriated slightly. I wonder what that fuel is. I mean, some of it is just that people are talking about it. I mean, Tucker Carlson on Fox News in particular has been claiming that this is real. People are, you know, so it's in the media. It's all over. You know, um, I was reading something. I was trying to find it this morning. I was reading it yesterday and I, I couldn't quite find it. There's a list of people who have been publicly claiming these kinds of things, you know, and sort of encoded, right? They're not using the the language of white genocide, right? But it's there, you know, I mean, it's also behind the 14 words that neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan use, but it's being, it's, it's being talked about as, as if that this is not white supremacy, right? As if it's just common sense, uh, right? It's that it's become a hegemonic language and like by hegemonic for you know here here i am using my uh academic language right but when i say hegemonic (laughs) for those of y'all listening right we're talking about something that is constructed right it's an idea that doesn't necessarily have any actual empirical evidence to back it up but it has been talked about in such a way that it has become as if it is common sense as if it's natural and so it is this idea of well of course everybody knows that and, and how does that happen? Well, it happens because it's talked about in, in, in public spaces. It's part of public discourse. It's not, it's being critiqued, but it's only being critiqued in certain spaces. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it becomes just one other thing for people to worry about or to place their anger towards, I think. Um, and it has become a, it's, it's, it's not conspiracy theory anymore. It's, this is the way the world is working. Yeah, and it makes me think the other day, a friend of mine who is very, very, very smart, she's a rocket scientist, like a literal rocket scientist, she uh, texted me the other day and said, hey, I just found out that the idea that population control and talking about population control as a way to uh, mitigate climate change is racist. 
And I didn't know that. Can you explain it to me? And this is one of the things that I was talking to her about because, you know, you would think, right, there's too many people in the world. We need to slow down population growth because like they're the, you know, the, the, the earth can't handle it. That seems like common sense. And it's kind of true, but then where do you go from that? Well, we need to stop people having babies. Okay. Well, who's having babies right now? And this gets back to, I think, Sharon, what you were talking about a second ago. So if we're saying we need to stop people having babies, that's going to end up being places that are usually not majority white because the population decline in Europe, right? And this is language that's been used far, far back. This is one of the reasons why those forced sterilization programs were happening, supposedly, when in fact, behind all of that was the idea that, well, we need to stop certain people having babies. Exactly. We need to stop certain populations having babies because we don't want those people to have resources. And so there really is this, this, this white supremacy behind a lot of that rhetoric, but it sounds so common sense, right? It sounds so natural, right? Of course, that's what we need to do. And, and you have to dig under the surface, right? And this is not to say if, if any of us have felt like, oh yeah, that makes sense that we're all automatically like, woof, you're oh, racist, right? But it is like, you have to like, what are, why? Like, why are we talking about it this way, right? And this is how we end up with having Supreme Court decisions leaked, right? That say things about child stocks, right? That we need to have, we can't like cut back on the supply of children, and like in this case, they were talking about for adoptions, I think, if I remember correctly. But ooh, like if you're if you're hearing that, right, you, you if you want to dig under the surface a little bit, there is some normalization of ideas there that have racist roots. And I think, you know, the language of white supremacy, I think the task of world building is connected to language. And and here's one of those places that, you know, really creates solidarity, especially, as you said earlier, from a hegemonic perspective or white dominant culture perspective, if you want to look at it like that. And so here here we are with this language of, you know, replacement theory, and, and especially when it's espoused by the Tucker Carlson's and the people that a lot of these people look up to for their information and for their news and for what they believe to be facts. And, and so I'm wondering about the fueling. I mean, Carly and I talked last week about, this is an 18-year-old. This is an 18-year-old who drove 200 miles, who, you know, uh, created this, what is it, 180-page manifesto, who says all of these things. And, and a lot of that just, and I'm not taking away from 18-year-olds who are brilliant, who will be rocket scientists one day, but... 18-year-olds with a 180-page manifesto, something is incongruent about an 18-year-old being able to do all that supposedly this young man is being accused of doing in, in this massacre. I mean, it's almost like, how, how does that happen? I mean, I think some of it has to do with, you know, and I, I can't speak to this quite as well about like radicalization, right? But I think like you raise fear and then you put it in a context of a certain kind of masculinity too, right? Um, that has to do with, uh, you know, because you're basically like this kind of rhetoric is convincing people that there's going to be demographic death, right? This is an existential crisis, right? This is a, it's not just a threat to you. It's a threat to all of your people. It's a threat to your children. It's a threat to, to the world. You know, this is how you get people to, to join civil wars, especially um, ethnic or religious-based civil wars, right? 
there's there's lots of different ways to recruit people to join right but you know i imagine that it's very similar in some ways to like how do you get people from europe and north america to join the civil war in syria um, especially when at the height when when isis was recruiting inter- internationally and it, it be, you have to make it an existential threat um this is not just a threat to you individually but a threat to your way of life a way to your people um, they want to wipe us off the face of the earth and you make it feel real and and then you you know rely on i suppose the the that level of you know I don't know. Every time I read about this stuff, I think about the the, the rhetoric from World War One, where they were able to get people to fight. Where it was like there hasn't been glory for you, like it was in generations past. You know, you're weak, and and the world isn't the same. And so you need to like go forth and fight for glory and be a hero or be a martyr or be whatever. Um, I imagine that's playing to a certain extent too. Um, although I don't, I haven't been reading these kinds of websites because I I just can't stomach it. But um, so I don't know, I can't say for sure that this is the kind of rhetoric that's happening, but I imagine that it is. I do know that the research that's been done about how ISIS was recruiting, you know, kids from the Netherlands to join, to fight for them. uh, A lot of it was that sort of, you know, uh, bring glory to your family or, you know, protect your people. This is your moment to be a man. I think that, I bet that's part of it, is my suspicion. Well, you... You're ahead, exactly because I was going to say that you know a lot about the website. <laughs> well, a little bit. So there's a podcast that I listen to where they do kind of dig into that, and they do it in a way, like you said, because it is very difficult to stomach. So they they take pieces of rhetoric from some of these right wing figures. They they talk about Alex Jones a lot and, and people like that, and they they will either play sound bites or they'll read from these websites and then they'll start to they'll deconstruct those ideas, right? But they also talk about how it's important that we do understand like what rhetoric is being used because it is very much exactly what you said. Are you a true patriot? Are you going to roll over and let this happen to your country? Are you going to fight for your future? And and very much it is very. Um, this is a real threat. This is an existential threat. This is happening. You know, they don't care about you. They're going to hurt you and your family. And and so, and and the they is very nebulous. Sometimes they means the, uh, the liberal elites, quote unquote. Sometimes they is um, people of color. It's very, you know, it's very nebulous. And it's also couched very sort of carefully in this like, but I'm not telling you to do anything violent. I'm telling you to stand up and do something like vote or community organize. And it's like, okay, but that's not what you're saying, right? And it's like, they're very afraid that they're going to quote unquote incite violence, but that's what they're doing at the same time. It's very, I don't know, the language they use is very careful, more careful than you would think. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And and partially because they have to be careful, right? Because the, the you know, hate speech is protected unless you're inciting violence, at least in the United States, right? And so like yeah. they can claim their first amendment rights uh, unless they're saying, and I would like you to go pick up a gun. Right. Yeah, and I think, and, and then you say it in the way where it's like, this is not, I'm not being racist, I'm not being hateful. This is just objective fact, Yes. right? And, and then it gets really tricky because yes, in fact, population is changing. Um, but that's not necessarily because a it's the intention of an evil cabal of whoever it is that gets to be part of that secret society of people, you know, puppet masters. This is just sort of the way that that things are happening because of birth rates and and, and death rates and sort of a large 
uh, scale. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about that. And, and it's interesting too, you know, there's a, a book that I've taught in some of my classes in the past, a, a class about, you know, why, how democracy fails, actually, which is a fascinating class. I love it. But um, there's a book that was written about why do people vote against their own interests, mm. their class interests in particular. Mm. And, you know, the, the argument that the author makes in this particular book is, and the book is called Strangers in Their Own Land, and I'm blanking on the name of the author at the moment. Um, but she she makes the argument that, you know, she uses this analogy that I think is really great. And it's basically like people are thinking that they're standing in line for the American dream, right? And I think that this is applicable to other places too, but she's writing specifically about the United States, right? And, you know, you do what you're supposed to do. You put in your time, you, you work your minimum wage job or, or salary job and you're 40 hours a week and, and, you know, you put bread on the table kind of thing, right? And you wait in line for the American dream and it never comes. And then you start to notice that people look like they're cutting the line, hmm. right? Uh, because, you know, someone is just waving them in ahead of you. And at least that's what it looks like to you from your perspective. And so all of a sudden you're like, those guys are cutting the line and we don't like line cutters. Um, they're jumping in ahead of us and they're getting all of these other things. And that means that we're stuck in the back of the line still. And you add on top of that, the idea that it's not just that they're cutting the line. They want to get rid of you. They're going to cut you out of the line altogether and maybe even just wipe it out so the line is only for them. I don't think it necessarily makes me feel super empathetic necessarily to it, but it sort of, I start to understand the logic a little bit of, of people, again, going back to the idea of it's not just a threat to getting the American dream, but it's an existential threat in the sense of not just that we'll never succeed, um, but that we won't even exist in another generation. Um, and it, they're not seeing what's going on in other places, right? It's just that sort of looking up the line to see that people are ahead of them. But I think that's how white supremacy is structural. You know, it's oh, yeah. embedded, it's built into the entire culture. And so if you can all project that that other group of people are causing you harm, so that I, I'm going to get that book. I think that's a, a powerful book because I've always looked at it like that. If you If you can project that somebody else is causing you harm or will cause you harm or stands in your way. And it's often hierarchical based on skin color, you know, and that's mm -hmm. why the whole thing with black America and the permanency, like Derek Bell says, and Isabel Walker, uh, Wilkerson, and some of those who talk about cast from the perspective of black, it's mm -hmm. always that way because of the color of skin. So anybody else can kind of be more accepted the lighter you are, the, you know, the, if you don't come from Africa, if we can get you from some mm -hmm. other country, then you can do. And so that, that whole structural piece that's embedded in this language is what I believe makes black people such a target. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like I was reading some articles about how even young children are feeling this like how come somebody can go in and shoot a bunch of people who look like me so young black children are actually feeling their worth or the lack thereof as young as an eight-year-old is kind of saying what's wrong with me or why would someone do that to people who look like me and 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 this this whole structural piece if you will this it's almost like white supremacy is a structural pillar of america and oh, i yeah yeah, you know, and I think I, um, you know, another book that I teach in that class on democracy uh, makes that argument in a, in a different way, right? So it's not, it, it, it's not, that's not where they start, uh, but that's where they end up. Um, and this is um, uh, Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt's book, How Democracies Die. 
And, uh, you know, their main argument is, you know, about the why we're seeing so much polarization in the United States right now, you know, and they and they trace it back in a couple of different ways, but if I can summarize their argument, hopefully I can do this well. Uh, but basically their argument is that the Civil Rights Act cracked open the, basically the, the unspoken informal institutions undergirding the American system that was basically saying we can reach across the political divide as long as we keep civil rights and voting rights off the table. Mm. And so you know, as soon as that gets put back on the table, the the Republicans stop reaching across the divide. And that starts in the, really in the 19, early 1970s with Newt Gingrich and Patrick Sartre. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of there, but they're basically saying that there there was an, un, it was sort of spoken, but a, but an unwritten agreement dating all the way back to the, the post-Civil War and post-Reconstruction that said, we're going to keep civil rights and equal rights for citizens off the table uh, so that we can make agreements across the divide. And, and then once we have the restructuring of the political parties so that, that the Republicans and Democrats shifted and we have civil rights in the 1960s, uh, that breaks apart. And so uh, we're seeing this polarization in large part because they're talking about race again and doing something about it. And it's threatening the status quo. That's a great book, too. I highly recommend it. You know, and 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 it's not as if this stuff hasn't been talked about in these kinds of ways before, but not necessarily in the mainstream by white folks, or it hasn't necessarily been listened to. Um, every I've been reading a lot of this stuff, and I keep thinking about a book that you know my sister teaches. And for those of you all who are listening, she teaches English at Emory and Henry as well, also Dr. Krauss. But she teaches a book. Um, she teaches a class on Afrofuturism, and one of the the books that's looked to as one of the first Afrofuturist books even though that term didn't exist at the time, uh, is from the early 20th century. It's called Black No More. And it's it's a science fiction book written about, you know, what if there was some kind of procedure that could turn Black people's skin white? And what would happen to the, the, um, the country? And what would happen to society if that was possible? And, you know, so that's like literal replacement, right? Because not because black folks take over, but because black folks become white folks and the white folks can't handle it because then how are you supposed to tell the difference between black folks and white folks? And it's that same ideology. I recommend that book to everybody too, because first of all, it's really funny, but also just brings up a lot of these, because uh, it's satire, brings up a lot of these issues. Of, uh, I think that maybe circling back to what you were talking about, Sharon, earlier with, you know, how does this affect you know, people seeing this kind of, of attacks, right? And, and the way that, 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 you know, so we can see through this book how, you know, at least some of the Black community back in the 1920s was seeing the effects of, of this idea of grace rate replacement and the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, you know, because that's an underpinning ideology of the Ku Klux Klan as well, right? I think the whole, you know, sometimes when I think about this and, and I think about, you know, even on this show, when we've been talking about white supremacy, sometimes, you know, just talking about white supremacy is provocation for people. You know, I mean, even like you're just saying, if you if you call somebody in or call them out based on their actions, as you just alluded to how the civil rights movement was able to do that, sometimes it makes it worse. You know, because, you know, we want to play polite racism. And so we don't want to talk about, 
you know, we don't want anybody to say that's wrong what you're doing. I mean, you know, you're, these things are not fair. They're not equitable. They're not inclusive. They're not any of these things. And when you call it out, sometimes that is major provocation. So when you tell white people, especially, and I think both of you identify as white, I do not identify as African-American, but when you call people, white people out sometimes, man, it makes it worse. It, it, it kind of ignites that violence for them to just be called out of a place that they have occupied for so long and told everybody this was right. All this is right. What we're doing is right. The way we're acting, the way we're treating you, all that is the, is the status quo. That's the way it's supposed to be. You call people out and oh my gosh, you know, provocation to the 10th power. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that we see this with race. We see this with gender, right. Too. I mean, if you call a man out, about, I mean, anytime that someone is seen as less a human, right? Because the only people who get to be human are the ones on top. Right. Um, so, you know, if, because the, the implication here is that we're not all humans who have the same rights and privileges that, or at least should have the same rights and privileges as any other human, right? And so women aren't human, uh, non-white folks aren't human. Um, I've been thinking about this lately because I've been trying to, to push myself into more um, understanding um, fat activism, right? fat mm-hmm. folks aren't human, right, is the is the implication of most of our society, right, you know, and, and that's that's the space that I've been the most uncomfortable with and for a don't while. don't be a fat black woman. <laughs> Ooh, and the intersectionality of it, right? No, absolutely, right? And so there there's all, of, and like all of that uncomfortableness and being like, oh, wait, because, right, we're, especially in the United States, I think I can't speak to other places, we're supposedly supposed to have our position because of our own virtue. I mean, this has to do with class too, right? People are poor because they're lazy, a question mark. That's all the time we have today. Please tune in the same time next week to hear the second part of this discussion with Reverend Sharon Bowers, Carly Blaylock, and Dr. Kristen Krauss on She Walks, right here on WEHC 90.7. Pass on the victory, we share.